Our first reading is from 1 Kings chapter 17. The background is that God instructed Elijah to travel to the town of Zarephath and stay with a widow and her son. Food was scarce, but Elijah told the woman that God would provide sufficient for them until the drought was over. So starting at verse 17, after this, the son of the woman became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, give me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up into the upper chamber where he was lodging and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I'm staying by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again and he revived. Elijah took the child brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, see, your son is alive. <clears throat> so the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The second reading is from Luke chapter seven, starting at verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow, and with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, you may not uh, know the term. Uh, you may have heard it, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't. Um, the, the word theodicy is the kind of technical word that's used to describe the problem of believing in the goodness and justice of God in the face of evil in the world. It's an argument that's often cited by people who um, want to discredit the idea of faith. So, you know, you know the way this goes. Uh, somebody will say, how can you believe in God when this kind of awful thing happens to this kind of otherwise innocent person? Interestingly, uh, for me, having grown up in the faith, this has never really proved the logical problem for me that I think it is for some. 
because I've never had a faith that believes that God rewards faithfulness with health or prosperity or some other tangible blessing. Similarly, I've never had a faith that believes that God responds to prayer by fixing our difficulties in life. For me, a belief in resurrection is not a conviction that God cheats death and that those who follow Christ get to do the same. But a belief in resurrection is still at the heart of my faith. The capacity for new life to emerge from the destructive efforts of death, whether that be physical, spiritual or emotional death, that for me is a revelation of the nature of God. So I don't find my faith challenged by nature red in tooth and claw. Rather, I see God's resurrecting nature at work in the constant rebirth of goodness, love and hope, despite and in the face of suffering. Which brings me to our two passages for this morning, one from the first book of Kings and the other from Luke's Gospel, which tell very similar stories. Both narratives feature a widow, a woman who's lost her husband, and along with her husband, her financial security and her status in society. In both stories, the widow's only hope for the future rests with her only son. These, you understand, were patriarchal days. Women didn't normally work for money, at least not honourably, and so they relied on their husbands or their sons to provide for them. The life of a widow with no son was, in the ancient world, no life at all. She would be at the mercy and charity of others alone in a hostile world. And in both our stories, the only son of the lonely widow falls sick and dies. The death of a child is always a terrible tragedy. But for a widow in ancient Israel, it meant more than personal grief. It meant economic destitution and social rejection. Both these stories, tragic though they are, were also stories of normality. Widows were not uncommon. Childhood illnesses were not uncommon. Lack of food was not uncommon. Teenage death was not uncommon. A, a, a widow whose son dies was not uncommon. Tragic? Yes. Heartbreaking? Yes. Uncommon? No. And yet, in both these stories, the unexpected happens. The oh-so-predictable outcome of the story is subverted. The future is rewritten. The certainty of death is confronted with the unforeseen intervention of resurrection, and suddenly everything is different. Let's start with Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. There was the context here was Elijah's lone struggle against the Baal cult, which King Ahab had introduced into Israel. At Elijah's proclamation, the Lord had sent a drought on the land to provoke Ahab into repentance. But the drought was affecting everyone, from the king to Elijah himself, to the poor widow and her son. By rights, 
they should all have been at death's door. And Elijah had only survived this far because he had been miraculously fed by ravens. He then turned up at the house of the widow, who was about to prepare her final meal for herself and her son so they could eat one last time together before dying together of starvation. But of course it wasn't their last meal because God intervened in the story to bring unexpected life from a situation of certain death, miraculously sustaining them through what I can only think of as the 9th century BC equivalent of a bottomless cup of coffee. This story clearly has something of the tone of folkloric myth about it, and it's probably not best not to get too hung up on the historical questions relating to being fed by birds or poor widows doing Jamie Oliver style cooking using jars of food that have gone all magic porridge pot. The point is clear. Death does not get the last word when God gets involved in the story. But death does still have some cards to play, and the good news of the miraculous food quickly gave way to the tragedy of illness as the young man succumbed to a sudden sickness. The widow mother's response was typically human, as she blamed Elijah, then God, and then herself in quick succession. But then again, God intervened, this time through the direct actions of Elijah, and the child who had died was restored to life, and his and to his mother, giving her back not only her son, but also her hope for the future. And again, the point is clear. Death does not get the last word when God gets involved in the story. Which brings us a few hundred years later to the Gospel of Luke and to his account of Jesus' visit to the widow of Nain and her son. The setup for this story actually occurred a few chapters earlier in the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was invited to preach in the synagogue at Nazareth and took the opportunity to deliver his now famous exposition on the Isaiah scroll. You will, I'm sure, remember the story. To start with, he read from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then in his sermon on this passage, Jesus said the following. The truth is there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. In his sermon... Jesus took the words of Isaiah, which the Jews of his day had interpreted as applying to them and to them alone, and he had reinterpreted them as applying to anyone who was in need, whatever their ethnicity, class or gender. A woman, a widow, at Zarephath in Sidon. He pointed out that Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, was sent not to the aid of Israel, but to the aid of an impoverished Gentile widow. And through this and then other examples, Jesus' sermon directly challenged the dominant protectionist mindset that sought to preserve the privileges of history for the heirs of the powerful. Jesus provocatively pointed to examples from Israel's history, which demonstrated that God's concern had always been for those beyond the boundaries of the chosen nation and never simply and exclusively for those in Israel. His sermon 
on the Isaiah scroll was in effect a manifesto for overturning the old order. And so his visit to the widow of Nain's house, which Luke narrates in language that deliberately echoes the visit of Elijah to the widow of Zarephath, was a visible enactment of the point he was making. The old order decreed that women could not work. The old order decreed that widows would be impoverished. The old order decreed that the sick would die. And to a world where the old order had reigned unchallenged, Jesus brought the challenge to end all challenges. This wasn't some idealistic preacher exchanging his pulpit for a soapbox whilst expounding a utopian vision of equality. Rather, this was Jesus, the man of God, who lived the message he proclaimed. And so after his sermon in the synagogue on the Isaiah scroll, Jesus went to the widow of Nain, just as Elijah had gone to the widow of Zarephath. And the point again is clear. When God gets involved in the story, death does not get the last word. The boy had died and should have stayed dead. The widow's world had ended and should have stayed ended. But Jesus disrupts the old order, bringing new life, new hope and new beginnings. The message of resurrection is here and it is clear. When God gets involved in the story, death does not get the last word. And so back to the story. Did you notice the crowds? No? How could you miss them? There are two huge crowds in Luke's story. Listen to the first couple of verses again and see if you spot them. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son and she was a widow and with her was a large crowd from the town. Two crowds. One crowd of following Jesus and his disciples, and the other crowd are following the dead body of a young man. One crowd are following life, and the other crowd are following death. There is no doubt death attracts a crowd, and the sudden and tragic death of a young person can attract a very big crowd. It was ever thus, and the media frenzies of our own day, which feast on the memories of recently deceased celebrities, are merely the latest manifestation of a common desire to gaze on death, to experience vicariously the grief of the bereaved, and to begin the process of collectively immortalising and appropriating the memory of any person taken by cruel fate. A friend of mine got into a lot of trouble this week for seeking to question the appropriating of somebody's memory to a wider narrative that might deserve questions asking of it. He's facing his own backlash at this moment and I invite you to pray for my friend Jarell as he's in a very difficult position right now for raising what seems to me to be an important question. If you want to know more about that I'll tell you later but death can attract a crowd and crowds can bay for blood. But life attracts a crowd as well. The overturning of the old order is compelling. 
the good news for the poor, the release of those held captive, the restoration of sight to the blind, these are good news if you are poor, captive and living in darkness. The invitation I gave at the notices earlier to join in some meetings online that might lead to people's lives being transformed. Now that's a crowd that's worth being part of. The promise of new life, you see, where death appears to reign supreme is always good news for those facing death. But it is challenging news for those who stand to benefit from the ongoing regime of death. Renewing properties so that people are no longer caught in fuel poverty and living in damp and cold might be good news for them, but it's terrible news for exploitative landlords making their money off the back of people. There will be a pushback. The promise of new life where death otherwise appears to reign supreme can pull the rug from under the feet of those who might seek to control the narratives of death. It can deconstruct those who might find it expedient to take the story of a recently departed person and retell it to their own ends. The new life that came to the widows of Zarephath and Nain was good news for them, but it was profoundly disturbing news to those who had a vested interest in creating a history which maintains the belief that the God-given privileges of society were for a small group defined by those who were inside that group. The crowd surrounding Jesus when he preached his sermon in Nazareth understood this. And it tried to kill him by taking him to the top of a cliff and throwing him off it. It's that crowd again, you see, the one that bays for blood and follows death. And which crowd are we in? I wonder, are we in the crowd that follows the dead boy, feeling oh so sorry for the victims of tragedy whilst remaining thankful that it's not us that the tragedy affects, then retelling other people's histories to our own advantage, where the survivors are the winners and the winners take it all? Or are we in the crowd that follows life, the crowd that confronts death head on and refuses to allow the narratives of death to have the final word on life. Because if we're in the second crowd, if we're in the crowd that follows life, then we are part of the crowd that is called to challenge the dominant order of the world. We're part of the crowd that refuses to accept the status quo, where the poor, the destitute, the sick and the dying are simply to be pitied. We're part of the crowd that is committed to joining with Jesus and Elijah in going beyond the boundaries of the acceptable as we seek to bring new life to those whose life stories are otherwise dominated by death. We're part of the crowd that knows that when God gets involved in the story, death does not have the final word. We're part of the crowd that sees the importance of benefits for the poor, of help for the destitute, of health care for the sick. And if we're part of the crowd that follows life, then we are ourselves called to become the agents of resurrection in a world that continues to believe and invest in the narratives of death. 
So to a world that says one death must be punished by another, we say that forgiveness and restoration are more important than retribution. To a world that says the poor deserve their lot, we say that the poor are dearly loved children of God. To a world that says those who are not like us do not deserve equal rights in our society, we say that Jesus has called us to go beyond the barriers of ethnicity and culture with messages of hope and new life. To a world that says equitable distribution of global resources is an unrealistic objective. We say it's not acceptable that one in eight are dying of starvation whilst many in the West are dying of obesity. To a world that wrings its hands at the suffering caused by climate chaos whilst continuing to plunder the planet for profit, we say there is a different way of being human which rejects the dominant narratives of consumption unto death. To a world that says death is the end, we say that it is not the end when God is part of the story. To a world that fears death, we say death is not to be feared because life itself finds its meaning in the resurrection of Christ. We are those who have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. We have been baptised into Christ's death and resurrection. And we are those who live and proclaim this message of life. We are those who live and proclaim the gospel good news of new life. Resurrection isn't about where we go when we die, it's about so much more than this. It's about discovering life in the midst of death. It's about plundering hell and bringing the lost to new life. It is the good news of the gospel of Christ who calls us to follow him and to share in the establishment of his inbreaking revolutionary kingdom that comes on earth as it is in heaven. We are those who are called to live as if this were true until it is true. Thanks be to God for this call on our lives. Amen. Now can I ask Andrea and Nigel and Dawn to join me <coughs> for a short discussion to follow the sermonette. Could you all unmute, unmute as well, please? Good morning. Good morning, Dawn. Nice to see you. Uh, would you like to comment? Um, I have to, the first thing that kind of struck me when I was listening to this, um, and I'm thinking about uh, what Simon was saying about being called, which crowd are we following? Are we following death or life? And um, I've mentioned it before, the whole sort of a tutor of mine sort of calling us to decide which God it is that we follow. So what God and so what? And... I was just I was thinking about um, sort of my younger days when I was part of a a more sort of I guess sort of typical evangelical church and world and the pressure to go out and evangelize because if we really believed in hell then we needed to go out and save lives and just reflecting on actually how I think that the challenge for me now now I've moved away from that I've kind of moved past that kind of faith to a one where actually the, the call is to action right now in that people are living in hell right now so we need to do something about it feels much bigger and much not overwhelming when I mean, it is overwhelming but like it, it feels 
harder because actually there is a, a challenge to see change now. For me, the evangelical sort of evangelizing, trying to save people from hell, it's, well, it's, it's the thing that's kind of behind the veil, the thing that we don't actually find out until later on. So it was, you did your best, but actually you, I kind of felt a bit let off the hook a lot of the time, but now it's actually, well, no, people will continue to die and continue to live in hell right now unless actually we do something. Um, and to me, that feels like a much bigger challenge, but also, I guess, in some ways, more more rewarding in some ways because you see the tangible change. You see you see things shift. We've seen like citizen stuff work, and and we know that it can. And actually, so it encourages you that you can do something. That you're not powerless. That actually, death doesn't have the final word, and resurrection can happen right now. believe would be if you believe in life start doing something now yeah yeah okay all right get involved get stuck in do the citizen stuff turn up to the meetings work out what's going on in your local area what need what the needs are how can you relieve people's suffering right now that's a really good comment Dawn it's a really good comment, Dawn. Thanks for that. I was kind of stuck on trying to understand what death meant in that sermon, because it seemed to mean so many, so many different things. Um, so in the end, it, it did feel like it was going more towards um, you know, social justice and speaking up. <laughs> And but as you said, Don, that is overwhelming at times, maybe most of the time. Um, so then what kind of the thought I came back to was there were many widows, but Elijah went to one. So is it hard to choose which one? Maybe, but it's important that he, you know, at least one widow was helped. Or two. That was kind of my thought. <laughs> I think that's really interesting, Andrea. The idea that both you and Dawn have said it's about what we actually do. And if I'm going to be old fashioned and picky, Simon, um, I'm a bit dubious about this word crowd. Because my understanding of a crowd is a lot of people who have no responsibility. And in the two stories we had, there were two actors. There was Elijah and there was Jesus. And they acted. And, and, and by their actions, they brought the actions of God into real life with individuals. The crowd were just there. And I think, you know, it's important that we realise that we can't just be part of the crowd. We have to do, if, if we... If we take our faith seriously, we have to do something. Although the crowd was a witness to the event, yeah. um, and they did have, it challenged their lives, brought fear and glory in one. It brought, uh, it, it brought a change in the lives of the people of Israel um, and Elijah. So the crowds do have a part to play. You know, there is a 
important rule for a leader, a, a, a spokesperson, for want of a better word, an actor then there's also that role for the crowd to get behind that actor and say, this is what we want. You know, we can, we can see that in our everyday culture at the moment, can't we? You know, the Trumpisms, you know, what their people want, what our people want, where, you know, that one leader can make a big difference. So there's a need for a leader, but there's a need for followers who can make that impact greater. I was thinking about the crowd as well and like um, what Simon was saying about the widow's very human reaction of blaming God, blaming Elijah and blaming herself. Um, and I was sort of reflecting on what did I think the difference between um, the crowd that blames versus the crowd that calls to account. And a lot of like the, um, I agree Nigel, that having a crowd creates a bigger impact. I mean, that's a lot of what when you do stuff like the mayoral assemblies and you do actions, it's about having numbers there because it makes a bigger impact. And what is that balance between the, those of us that are blaming and looking for someone to blame and to be angry at versus actually recognizing where responsibility lies and calling people to that responsibility and calling that, those people to those account, like those leaders that you were talking about. And where's that balance between, and it's that classic thing of a, one man's terrorist is another um is another person's uh, freedom fighter like are we blaming or are we calling to account there's a lot of i think in the, the world that we live in at the moment there is an awful lot of death and an awful lot of blame but there also needs to be some accountability and how do we hold, hold those things together but there's still an awful lot of action to be taken as well isn't there you know it's like yeah. being brought being brought up uh, by a widow um, for most of my, uh, my, my teenage years. Um, the impact, of, even now, of losing that father figure and you know, the, the struggle that can be had in those, in those families is tremendous. You know, if, you are, you know, if, you're under, if you're under a certain age, you no longer get widow's pension. You know, decision that was made by government years ago. You have to go out to work. Well, if there's only one of you, how do you do childcare? You know, um, there's a tremendous, your taxation laws are terrible for widows. Well, yeah. It's not just widows, it's single mums or single yeah. parents, um, yeah. low-income families. It's, I, I completely get what you're saying. It's, it's all those that, that are in that vulnerable position and are there through no fault of their own. How do we, how, yeah, how do we become Elijah to them or to Jesus, like Jesus to them? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot to be said in the, in, in the Bible about widows and orphans. Mm. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about hell and death and resurrection. And um, yeah, yeah, we come to that with the prayers. <laughs> And going back to the Elijah story, um, the drought was affecting not just one widow, but all widows. Yeah. Now we live in a world where we don't have a drought, but we have a pandemic, which means there are more widows, there are more um, people who, for whom life is incredibly difficult uh, as, as a result of things beyond their, their ability to, to correct. Yes. Or influence very often. Yeah. 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 
you said. So the interesting bit, thinking about what you just said, is that Elijah went and to live with that widow. Like there was a situation that actually made them come together. Mm. Whereas in our lives, I'm not sure how many times we get in touch with people who are very different from us, like unless we're being very intentional. Um, at least I, I know I, like I can count <laughs> uh, very easily the number of times I actually, you know, put myself into a, a situation that was, you know, like that. So maybe that's one, one step forward. <laughs> But Elijah was intentional, wasn't he? He was sent to Zarephath. He went to Zarephath. He made that he made that commitment to going following um, direction on his life, uh, for one of the better words. And he, you know, that was a directional sort of uh, intervention. Um, and we very often just walk around going, "What can we do? What can I do? How can you know, we are we have been diminished in our in opinions of." Of our, of our, I won't say importance, of our influence. We're diminished of our influence. Mm. And we're not willing to, we don't then move forward and support and encourage and enable. And so citizenship is a good thing because it improves your, your opinion of your influence and the power of your influence. I'm just reading some of the things which have come up in the chat. Um, thanks, Liz, for a, a, a very long um, piece that you've written, which I, I, I'll try and summarize very quickly. And um, you talk about the challenge that we have as Christians, um, trying to live a Christian life and, and thinking that all is well, <clears throat> all is well with us. <clears throat> and is that, a, is that a kind of hell? Because we're not really the world that other people live in. Um, so <clears throat> it's hard for us nowadays to, to, to think what, what we should be thinking about the rest of the world. I'm sorry, that's a very, very summary um, description of what you've said, Liz. Um, you've written it so, mu so much more succinctly, so I suggest people re read, read the chat. But the, the fact that being a Christian presents us with challenges as to how we look at the world and how, how we choose to live in it is quite interesting. And, and Jeff asked the, the, the interesting question, is an emphasis on family really an abdication of our responsibilities towards society? So as, as we concentrate on our own family and, and how it's surviving the pandemic, are, are we forgetting about um, the effect on, on society at, at large and how other people are suffering? Well, I, just, I was just thinking what Andrea said about the fact that Elijah went to live with that widow. So that widow welcomed Elijah in and she was still focused on her family, but she, she made space for him and that obviously had consequences, but I'm just... I'm, I don't think uh, an emphasis on family has to be an abdication of responsibility to society. Um, my family's grown quite recently, and I don't think that that means that I can abdicate responsibility for the rest of the world. 
I think that part of that responsibility may now be that I am bringing up my little people in a way that is going to hopefully create a positive impact on the world, um, as well as being active in society and in holding people to account and challenging power and that sort of thing. And to live that example, I don't think that an emphasis of family is an abdication of responsibility. I think the two things should and can, but I think it can be used as an excuse sometimes. The Bible has many passages on widows, orphans, and the fatherless. In Hosea says, for in you the fatherless find compassion. We praise you that we can trust in your compassion and mercy, for you are the God who has drawn close to your creation by your spirit, your word, and your son. We're in awe that you have called us and we praise you. We thank you for those who remind us of your love. Simon, Dawn, all the NHS staff, the volunteers in vaccine centers, vaccine scientists, laboratory and production workers, youth workers, those who are housing the homeless, caring for victims, protecting the children and feeding the hungry. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as poor and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. We accept that we do not always do what you desire. We abuse your world. We take more than we give. We are loveless and careless. We are greedy and thoughtless. We confess to you that we, are, that we fail and we call on your mercy our faithful saviour to plead for us and to grant us forgiveness. Defending the cause of the fatherless and the widow and love the alien, giving him food and clothing. We pray for all the staff of the NHS. We pray for their protection. We pray for the COP26 and the G7 summit in Cornwall the governments will discuss global warming and its impact on the poor and the vulnerable. We pray for fairness and to uphold the cause of the widow and the alien. We pray for schools as they return, for staff, for students, for the future, for their education. We pray for the LGBTQ plus community this month. We thank you for our inclusive fellowship and community. We ask for wisdom for how we work with this community to draw those into the joy of the kingdom. We pray for Liz in a new job, Simon and Dawn, our ministers, as they work with us to support us, that we might support them. We pray for Dawn, Simon, as he works from home and juggles childcare. We pray for James, the church manager, we pray for our nation, for our government, for Stormont, Holyrood and the Senate. Give wisdom. We pray for the leaders of the Baptist family as they represent us to the world. Lynn Green, Yinka Okenya, Jeff Colmer, Kang Santan. We ask for your blessing and guidance on them and their ministry. 
We pray for the black lives in our communities and for the disproportionate numbers in the criminal justice system. We pray for change. We pray for youth work and youth workers. We pray for the work of Impact Dance. We pray for the health of the BAME groups in the pandemic and those who are there encourage them to take up the vaccine. We remember political situations in Myanmar, Russia, Uganda, USA and China. We remember the conflicts in Tigray, Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, Israel and Palestine. We pray for peace and concord. We don't just want to pray good for the world, we want to act. Lead us in your way as individuals and as a church, local and national and international to help us. Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. We thank you that you said you would not leave us as orphans and that you would come to us. So, so as you have promised, we ask you to be with us as individuals and families over the coming weeks and months. We pray for Annie and Dan Dupre, Kim and Susan, Jackie, Sandy, Dave and the family. Those struggling with mental and physical health, those seeking work and leading for the future to come as you promised to be with us. Amen. And now a benediction. May the Lord bless us and keep us all. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us all peace. Amen.